Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran Kansas City jazz saxophonist and educator, the great Todd Wilkinson. He talked about his newest venture, the 2019 CD, On the Lamb. It's a great listen. He is a lifelong native of Kansas City, and he has been performing professionally since 1983. He graduated from Shawnee Mission Northwest High School in 78 and got his start playing in rock bands shortly thereafter. He's been around, and he's got great stories and recollections about Kansas City Jazz and the idiom at large. In 2010, he began his current position as the Director of Jazz Studies at Ottawa University in Ottawa, Kansas. He's got a unique perspective as a performer and equally as an educator. Don't miss this interview with a Kansas City institution. Please get to know Todd and dig this interview, my friends. At any rate, Todd, I can't believe we haven't spoken before. Um, Seems like I've made my rounds around the Kansas City scene so much. So thank you for taking a minute out to talk with Neon Jazz. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. My pleasure, man. I, I'm sorry, too. It's, just, it's sort of a blessing of riches, you know. I have so many things going on. I'm just constantly in motion. And unless I just kind of bang into you someplace or we make a, you know, an actual date for lunch and put it in my calendar... Yeah, there's a lot of people. I had dinner with some friends last night. I haven't seen them for months, and I love them. And I'm sitting there having dinner, going, "Man, I love these people." Yeah. <laughs> why have it? Why has it been four months? You know, since I've seen these. Because I'm just, I guess, yeah. I live in the moment. That's my biggest problem. If I really don't try to extend the path at all, the path. Yeah. I mean, I'm certainly not trying to invite the future. I'm just right here all the time, and so. And I'm I'm never bored. I love everything. So that's another problem. Well, so, it's a good problem to have. Yeah, we I'm we glad do that. You called, thanks. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we we're always re- reminding my son to live in the moment. So yeah, I, I I totally understand that. It's something that we all need to do more. But um, thank you for sending out the CDs. I want to talk to you about your latest release on the Lamb. It's a great disc. Give me your idea of what your artistic vision for this project was. Okay, so yeah, on the Lamb is more the that's the one that's sort of my idea of, you know, jazz for, not for jazz people necessarily, you know. Okay. So a lot of the tunes, you know, have backbeats or kind of funky, kind of in your face, aggressive, a lot of blues in them. Or there's a few of them on there that are like a bossa nova or, you know, the Latin kinds of things. Just, just things that will kind of attract people's attention that aren't necessarily musicians or connoisseurs, if you will, of, of straight-ahead jazz. That's what On the Lamb is. And then the other album, uh, On Ice, that, so that one's more straight-ahead, you're more acoustic, not as much electric bass, more solos, more, uh, you know. And then the the, court, the quintets I'm doing, the same kind of thing, that's more of an academic kind of world sax quartet sort of meets, I don't know, uh, and those are just different things I do as a as a musician. I'm I cover a lot of bases because I'm academically trained, but I spent a lot of time playing in R and B bands and rock bands, and I spent quite a bit of time playing straight ahead jazz and tons of time playing big band music. So and there's all kinds of uh, of uh, I don't know. I have I just different tastes and things I like to do. So on the land, that's more intended for. Uh, to generate an audience of people that might not necessarily go out looking for jazz music at night. You know, something I could play in a blues club, and I'd still be just fine playing that music at BB's. They'd be okay with Absolutely. that. Absolutely. I 
walk-in and played a, a Charlie Parker tune, they, they'd actually tolerate it, but it would just be so outside of their wheelhouse that they'd be thinking, Mike, what, uh, you know, what the <laughs> yeah. heck? So, Absolutely. And, and I, I think one of the huge, there, there's a couple of, my biggest uh, issue with jazz is that there aren't any hit records anymore, and there used to be when I was coming up in the 70s and 80s even, you know, guys were getting were cracking the top forty with instrumental music, and or or at least things that were jazz like, like Benson's Breezing. You know, I mean that old Mangione, you know, feels so good. Those, those things were big hits, and they were playing on the radio. In fact, um, you know, I remember Romantic Warrior played on the radio, and uh, Jean Luc Ponty, Imaginary Voice, that was all over the radio. And I remember hearing weather report on the radio, you know, on top 40 a, or FM radio. So you just don't hear much of that. And I'm not very interested in the smooth jazz thing or the groovy, you know. I mean, I, I, it's just not my thing. I, I like things that are a little more hard-hitting. So more of a jazz rock thing, I guess, is really what it is. It goes back to my roots. When I was a kid, it was called jazz rock. American Garage was considered a jazz rock album, even though now we look at it, we call it fusion. Does that help? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, totally, it does. So speaking of roots, you're a native of Kansas City, born and raised here, correct? Yeah, I was I was born in Kansas City. I was born in Providence Hospital, 1960. God dang. And then uh, my dad worked for Panhandle Eastern Natural Gas Pipelining Company all my life. And so... We moved out to liberal Kansas for six or seven years. He built a pumping station out there, and then we moved back to Kansas City in 67, I think. And then I wound up, we wound up bouncing around it. Back when, you know, uh, Quabira was a gravel road past 95th Street. Uh, 75th Street didn't go all the way through. Uh, it was a gravel road right where it hit uh, Neiman. And I went to Shawnee Mission Northwest. How did you get involved with liking jazz and wanting to become a musician? Yeah, that's an interesting one. So, you know, I'm a product of public school music, really, and that's how I got into it. And I played in band, and I started playing in big bands when I was in seventh grade at Trail Ridge Junior High. I've played in a big band ever since, you know, either directing one or playing in. or you know, So public school music, really, and then... As I started to get older, I got into rock and roll. I really liked playing drums. I wanted to be a drummer. I wanted to go learn how to be a musician. I was a singer, too. I went to Arizona State on a voice scholarship. And when I got there, just a couple of strange little things happened, and I switched over to saxophone uh, and quit playing drums, oddly enough. I just didn't have the skill level on everything. So that's how I got really kind of went down the path of learning how to play well enough to be a professional musician. Was it always going to be jazz for you? Did you know you were going to become a professional musician, or were there other things? It wasn't always going to be jazz. It was just going to be music. I wanted to be, like I like you know, um, the bands that I really liked at the time when I was um, an impressionable youth, like Blood, Sweat, and Tears, you know, that kind of a thing. So I don't, I don't know what you call that. That's jazz to me now, or even then it was. But a lot of people would call that R&B or rock, rock and roll. I was totally into rock and roll at that point, too. Not very wild about uh, disco music. That was a real downer for me. But I loved Led Zeppelin. 
Pink Floyd. I mean, I went to a million concerts in high school, like like a hundred. You know, saw the Pink Floyd Animals tour and Heart, and you know, I, God, I guess all the summer jams we used to go to. And so I was just really into the whole social thing. Plus, I like to get high and party and be a crazy boy, sworn to find loyal to none kind of thing. And I didn't want to just take a job and work inside all day. And I thought, well, man, I could. I'm smart enough to do this. I can make this work. So I went to college to study jazz because it was the closest thing to rock and roll. And I didn't have rock and roll at college, so I thought, well, I'll just do this jazz thing, you know. And it wound up to be a blessing. How did how did this how did it all begin as a musician for you in the beginning? Like, how did everything start taking off and becoming, you know, becoming a pro musician? Yeah, that's a little more problematic. Well, I met some guys in college, and we started a band, and we played weather report tunes. We were called the Hint Band, and then the singer's um, father, she was out there going to school, and her father was very wealthy, and she got married to a great bass player in Phoenix, and they bought a nightclub called Chewy's, and so we became the house band for this singer at Chewy's, and so we started playing music there, and then on the nights I wasn't uh, working, I, I would run the door, and they would have, like, Steps Ahead or... Uh, the Dixie Drags, or and I'd be, I'd get to go to all the shows just and stand at the door, taking tickets, you know, twenty feet from these guys. So it's got, it, it, there was sort of that intro, and then uh, like the the band at my school was it was a really good band. It was international players. I mean, when I first landed at Arizona State, Lewis Nash was the drummer in the big band. He was, he was like 20, you know, and kill Yeah. Now, a lot of players like that at Arizona State in 1978, 79. And so, you know, the, the, the dean of music at Boston College now was a saxophone player in the program, and he was older. And so I got to see these, these guys role modeled a lot of stuff for me. Like, oh, that, oh, <laughs> that's, that's how this works. Bob Washett, who's had a great career in northern Iowa, he was my band director of the second band. He was working on his master's degree. So I met just a, just a ton of people that were on their way in and through. I met tons of musicians. I mean, you know, hanging at a bar with Don Mensa drinking Irish whiskey and Frank West and Dexter Gordon playing my tenor saxophone. And, uh, I mean, I could just keep going on. Herbie Mann, uh, uh the Shelly man, uh, uh, just just a, there's a, oh, hundreds of jazz musicians that would come through doing gigs at the school because the teachers there were, were like Tom Ferguson and Chuck Maroonick. They were you know, seasoned veterans coming out of other places. So it's kind of a social scene, you know. You you sort of hang out with people and you meet people and then they have a network and then they know people and then you meet those people. And, it's just like that. It's just the very the social element of music. It's just pretty small world. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the other part of you is that you're an educator. You've been uh, at Washburn University, uh, University of Kansas, um, and it's, since 2010 you've been at Ottawa. What is it about education? What is it about you lending what you know or being involved with the future of jazz that's so important? Oh, I just like people, man. I'm a devout Hindu, you know, and so my whole thing is pretty much trying to to uh, get out of my own ego, which I can't hardly do because my ego's huge, and uh, I, so I like being with other people, and that's that's the, the thing that colleges have, and you, you, you know, you have colleagues, and then you have administrators, and you have 
students, or that you're going out, you're just moving through a lot of different social environments where you get a, it's sort of like entertainment or attention attainment, if you will. You're just looking to inspire people and then also give them something that they can keep or use for themselves in another way. Or I just like that. It's passing the torch. It's kind of like a, an academic union or an academic, let's see, apprenticeship sort of thing because there's not a, they don't have the apprenticeship system like they used to have in the 40s and 50s where you could just go play professionally, playing every night and then practicing during the day. And, you know, I mean, when you were in the guys in Miles Davis band, that was what they did. They practiced all day, ate food, drank, played the gig, played another gig, you know, with a life game. I was hoping by the end of college, I was, I was thinking, well, maybe I can get good enough to get in Woody Herman's band, you know. <laughs> And then he died. <laughs> he like, oh God, dang it! All those guys. I was just in a in a weird crack. I was I, I came in during fusion. That was a time when a lot of there was a ten year period there where guys just didn't go play jazz. Really. Between about I don't know, nineteen sixty five and nineteen eighty, <clears throat> until the Marcellus brothers kind of came back in. You know, we, nobody really we didn't you couldn't get a gig playing jazz. You had to play dance music. Um, you go in the plaza, it was all horn bands in the 70s. Disco, man. Top 40. Yeah. So there just wasn't any places to play, and I wasn't good enough either. I'll give you that. I'm not a great player. I'm really kind of a dilettante. And so that also suits me well at the college. I can do a lot of things. I can do composition. I can write. I can teach history. I can teach non-majors. I can teach saxophone and woodwind. You know, I can do a whole bunch of things, and it sort of suits my... Um, uh, proclivities or my it suits my talents. I'm sort of a, a multi uh, doubler. I'm a I'm an academic doubler, like a woodwind doubler. You know, you've been through this town. You've been in this town. You've seen so many incarnations of things that happen. What do you like best about Kansas City? Well, Kansas City is a soulful town. Period. I mean, that's the reason so many Kansas City musicians can go other places. They Kansas City is a, a place where people tell stories, you know, really good stories, meaningful ones, and and uh, that's what the blues is. I mean, Kansas City is really a blues town. It's a where blues and jazz got hitched up, you know, in the mid-30s. Gee, I mean, if you're thinking of Jamin Shin's a good example of that jump blues thing, you know. That, to me, that's Kansas City music, and that's all about, like, does it swing and is it soulful and do you mean it, you know, and, and can you entertain people? Can you get up in front of people that don't know anything about anything and, and keep their attention and have them, and will they buy drinks and dance and then buy your CD and, you know, being an entertainer, that's a big deal. It's not a big deal to some people. Uh, there is a lot of academic music out there and that's all, that's all just as valuable, I think, but it's a different deal. And I don't think it's as big a deal in Kansas City as it would be in, say, New York or parts of Los Angeles or, you know, except Chicago's kind of the same way. Chicago's a very soulful town. So is New Orleans. You know, you've got a really good pulse, I think, on being in, in education and being a performer and being in a town like Kansas City that's really actually doing quite well. How, what is the health of jazz in America in 2020? 
<laughs> That's a tough question, you know. Everybody's asking that question. And so, I mean, the first thing you got to say is, well, what, do you, well, what do you mean by jazz? There's a lot of people out there that have a lot. It's not a very good term as far as defining. Do you mean Stan Getz, 1958, you know, which is what's a great year for jazz, I think. One of the best years for jazz. A lot of great records came out. So, you know, what is jazz? Is it a style of music? You know, is mainstream jazz what you're talking about? Or So, I mean, for me, jazz is kind of a behavior. It's sort of a, a set of loose base rules that can, people could, it's like a gumbo, you know. You can make a lot of different kinds of it. Uh, so... I don't know. I think it's as healthy as it's ever been. Kansas City's always had more music than it should have for this population size that it that it is. It's always been pretty good. It's just you just it doesn't it may not satisfy you the exact way you want to because you know what's going on in whatever the economy or the or pop or media or you know, so there have been times where it wasn't as good to be a straight-ahead jazz musician as it, as it is maybe today. But, you know, you could always get gigs playing the blues. You could always get gigs playing Dixieland music. You could get gigs playing casuals, parties, bands, wedding bands. You know, so do you want to do service music or do you want to just do art music? You know, do you want to do concerts or do you want to play club dates? Do you want to play shows? For me, it's just professional music. I don't even care anymore. The jazz thing, I suppose it implies a rhythm section, uh, swing, improvisation of uh, sectional forms like the blues and rhythm changes and maybe the Great American Songbook and bebop and you know I mean it's it's a it's a that's a really difficult question to answer right Um, you know there's not a strong music union anymore, uh, much to my chagrin. I wish there was. But I don't think, you, you know, people complain about not being able to make a living playing club dates, but nobody's ever been able to make a living playing club dates. So, I don't know. I, I, there's no way really to answer your question and be correct, I don't think. I think it's just music, and it's just been as good as it's ever been, and people are going to find new ways. to. Really, the bottom line as a musician is, do you ha- have you found an audience or not? If you yeah. find an audience, you're good to go, and you like what you're Absolutely. doing. And then, then is that jazz? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, and live music is really where that's kind of my thing. Is it live music? Then you're good to go. You you play music, yeah. yeah. Do you perform it live? Then I like you a lot. Oh, you play violin? Want to jam? <laughs> cool. We right. Make music. You know. So I. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you're not going to probably play like uh, concertos or sonatas or recital music or new music or but I don't think anybody ever expected to make a living just playing new music. I mean there's new music ensembles but you're really I mean, it's there's the audience is much smaller for that and you have to cast a much wider net. So you you know you need to be going national or international with that kind of thing. It it just depends. You know, what you uh how do you value a good band? Well, you look at the cash register at the end of the night at a bar <laughs> and if there's a lot of money in there, that was a good band. <laughs> yeah. I mean you, you know what I mean? It, as sad yeah, I think it. Sad, it's like, oh you are and then they're like, Oh well you're selling out. Well, uh okay. Uh, uh 
I, I got to buy food, man, so I need money. So how do I make money? Playing live music. It's tricky, man. Yeah. I feel for cats, you know, that have expectations that the, the audience is going to come up and appreciate them and put them on a pedestal that they deserve, really. <laughs> but nevertheless, yeah. you know, you know, people are out there playing them. I mean, I see these sax players, and they're just killing it, man, and nobody's listening to them. They're just talking. And I don't know. Have you heard Steve Martin play? Oh, man. Yeah, totally. He's an amazing player. When I go in, yeah. I have to just hold my jaw closed so it doesn't hit the table, you know. And then I sit yeah. right in front of him, and I just go, God damn, this guy's amazing, you know. But then all around him, no, there's, I'm the only guy. It's me and the other musicians are listening, you know, and and we're all drinking coffee. Yeah, <laughs> you know, absolutely. So, so Steve yeah. has to move around, man. He's got to go to Stockholm, you know, and France, and you know, and and amen to that. That's fantastic. I love that. But if you're just going to stay in Kansas City and play, and it's always been this way, if you're going to play in Kansas City for a living, you got to play dance music at some point. And you've got to have people come in and, and buy something, product of some sort, usually booze or food or, you know, a cover charge. Or, did you remember when I had that club, the drum room, I had a band called Boko Maru? Yeah, absolutely. Did you ever hear that CD, that Dreamland CD? I didn't, no. Man, you should check that out. That's a great CD, and it's pop music. And the whole idea was, that band was going to be musicians' music for non-musicians. It was very successful. It's just we just didn't know how to mock ourselves, really, because we weren't anything. We were kind of everything. Yeah. And we were a real hybrid. And, uh, man, you, listen to that album, Boko Maru, Dreamland. Check that out. I will. I totally will. It so let's, it'll blow your mind anyway. Yeah, no, I love it, man. That's the kind, that's the kind of route I love going down. So let me ask you this. Why do you love jazz? Uh, because, well, I, really? I mean, the, the reason I love jazz is because when Dexter Gordon plays a solo, his solo is every bit as profound as the melody of the tune he's playing on. And those tunes he's playing are pretty damn profound. You know, when he plays Darn That Dream, Man, he wails on the melody, which I love. And I love melodies. That's why I play saxophone, because melodies are... Without melodies, we wouldn't have these tunes, you know? That's why we're playing them. And, man, when he solos like that... Have you heard that Dexter Gordon Ballads album? Yeah. It's just called Dexter Gordon Ballads. It's fantastic. Yeah. His totally. ballad playing fantastic. And so, you know... The stories that Cannonball Adderley, like on something else, you know, that just blew my mind, man. Those solos are so good. They're, yeah. I mean, I know them note for note. I can sing kind of blues. The solos become uh, like, they're frozen compositions, you know? And, yeah. Uh, or Art Pepper meets the rhythm section. That whole record's killer. You know, it's not yeah. as probably technically as intense, but man, the stories, the stories, you know, that's yeah. why I like uh, Frankie Trumbauer or Big <laughs> Louis Armstrong. Oh, my God. Hotter than that. That solo he takes on Hotter Than That, that's such a great story. And it's so yeah. enduring. And it's even better. I don't know. It's Louis Armstrong, too. You know, yeah. I mean, nobody else could play that solo and and 
and it just wouldn't be the same story if somebody else told it. Whereas, I guess that's what it is, you know. We tell these stories in our own way, and they're better because we're of the person that's telling the story. And not everybody's cut out to be a great storyteller. Uh, but the great storytellers are, are fantastic, you know. Yeah, totally. I agree. I agree. And it's sort of like improvising over something that everybody everybody knows. So, it's, you know, if I knew the Gettysburg Address well enough and I could riff on it, I could, it yeah. would be cool. You know, that would be like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Sweet. <laughs> Check that totally. out. Totally. He's, he's doing the Gettysburg Address, but it's probably yeah. added that. Oh, I never thought about that. And so I, I think <laughs> that's what it is. If it just allows me to, um, when I hear those solos and I get them in my mind, they become me. I become that. Uh, yeah. Gosh, I don't know what that means. It's sort of like a religion or something. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's like a, uh, I don't know, man. It, it, it helps me to, uh, hmm. It gives it just gives me meaning, and it, and it's not just an intellectual, but it's also a real emotional thing as well. So it's a mind and body experience that I find very satisfying. Um, you know, that's only you know, the only thing that approaches that is LSD for me. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I did have some good moments up in a, in a pine tree in uh, uh, Four Peaks, Arizona. It was a good night. <laughs> oh, right on. I dig it totally. So <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense, but but when you yeah when you, you're able to actually realize the great that there's this great for me anyway there's a great uh, disconnect uh, physically and mentally from really what's going on, and we kind of all live in a sort of a state of ego illu- delusion. And music is a way to get out of that because you, it's a place where you go. That you don't have arms and legs and you're not running a fever or you need to eat. You know, when you're playing music, it's just like you're not – it's different. It's in a world of sound. It's close to the – what do they call that? Astral plane, you know. Yeah. It's, it's like one step ne- into the, next to the astral plane. It's not quite like a dream when you're, when you're dreaming, you know. You know what I mean? When you're dreaming, you it's like real, but it's not. Right. Yeah, and, I totally know. And, and, and music's kind of like that, too, except it's a, it's, it, it leans a little more towards the... It's more in the realm of conscious reality. It's not so much unconscious. But some guys, I think, can, can really approach um, transcendence when they play. I think Train was damn close. Uh, Michael Brecker was pushing the limits. I think Pat Metheny can do it. Um, there are some guys that, that uh, transcend certain kinds of um, physical, temporal limitations uh, using music. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, and then there, once you set that precedent, then there's a tradition, there's a, there's a marker in time. I mean, got it. It's, it's just a great metaphor for all of reality. And, yeah. and for me, it's it's it's, it's it's, it just makes more sense to me than uh, you know, buying a boat or fishing yeah. or, yeah. you know, or, or even doing sit-ups, <laughs> you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I guess you could yeah. find that. I, you know, another thing I'm really into is, like, I, I study Chin-style Tai Chi. Yeah. And it's, it's, 
it's an attempt to understand the Tao, which is or the or yin yang, yin yang actually, and um, it's a way to to uh, the the goal is to unify mind, body, and spirit all into one thing. That's tricky. Yeah, and we spend a lot of time and a lot of pressure in a lot of ways trying to make ourselves look like somebody or talk like somebody or dress like somebody or be some sort of, you know? And, and with music, uh, it's totally there as well. But the jazz thing allows you, the part of the aesthetic of jazz is that you get to be you. It's not important what tune Louis Armstrong played. It's important that Louis Armstrong played the tune. It's got the, the performer aesthetic, not the composer aesthetic. That's a great answer, man. So everything's going to come down to this. I want to know this. Everyone has their perception of you, your family, your friends, your students, fans, but you know yourself best. Who do you think you are? I am the Atman. I'm deluded by Maya, quite simply. I couldn't tell you who I am, man. Yeah, I'm not sure it's really even true. I think, you know, it's, uh, I think I'm probably just as real as whatever anybody thinks I am. You know, I mean, really, yeah. that's the way. Yeah. I mean, when you think of Louis Armstrong, it's not really Louis Armstrong, but he's iconic, and and you know him, and you have your own thing. But you, you might be, you know, if you'd have been luck, lucky enough, but dang it, I wish I had a met him. But just imagine sitting down for, with Louis Armstrong for 15 minutes, and you'd, you'd have a whole other vibe about Louis. Then imagine, like, hanging out with, doing a gig with Louis Armstrong or going on the road with him for six months or being married to him. You know, all those Louis Armstrongs would be different. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I am whatever your impression is of me or however much time you spend with me. Or, you know, I, I, I'm just the guy that you, you could leave me Look, you could you could you could hand me twenty thousand dollars cash, your twelve year old daughter in your car, and say, "Man, I'll be back tomorrow." And when you got back tomorrow, you'd still have twenty thousand dollars worth of cash. I would have probably vacuumed your car out. Your daughter would be eating probably ice cream and unviolated, <laughs> and and you'd be going, "Dude, thanks a lot." You know, <laughs> I mean, my whole life is like about service. If I can, if I can make your life easier just by talking to you. You know, or if you really need five bucks, I'll give you five bucks. If you need a job, I'll call somebody and try to, you know, I'm just a, a, trying to be a team player and have integrity at the same time. Right on. That's cool, man. I love that answer. Todd, thanks for taking a minute out. This has been refreshing. I appreciate Please, the music. Joe. I appreciate the time. All right. Well, keep the faith, Joe, and thanks for everything you do. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest cats in Kansas City and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Todd for his time, his swagger, and his cool. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Storm. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.